0: It's funny, by the 70s, so in the 60s, a series of tests are started to see if you restrict saturated fat, replace right. it with monounsaturated, polyunsaturated fats, whether you'll save lives. And the answer is they have no idea. You know, it's some confusing. studies, yeah. maybe other studies, yeah. maybe not. It's certainly not a quick fix. And there's right. at least one huge study that shows that you get more deaths if you boost the saturated, lower saturated fat. So they launched two huge studies that are going to address parts of this hypothesis. Again, not realizing really that it's not enough to just address parts of a hypothesis. You've got to get the whole thing. And now you're spending, the NIH spending $250 million to test a hypothesis. And Congress has given them the go-ahead to spend that money. But to the layperson, if you refute a hypothesis, you've wasted money. Okay, so once you decide to spend hundreds of millions, and this is still true today, I mean, it's um, you just can't accept that you spend money to prove that you were wrong, even though all of science is about trying to prove that you're wrong. Everyone
1: expects, hey, $100 million in, I want a freaking shiny widget, right? But science is not about, it's like proving the opposite. I
0: I want to know I was right all along, right? And my congressman wanna so as soon as you do the studies, there's this incredible motivation to spin the results to make it clear that you that money was well spent also because you want people to give you more money and we've got this public health catastrophe people are dying out there so we've got to give them advice and even if we can't prove that we're right if we think we're right, that's what we should yeah. tell people. I mean I do that in the sugar book. I say, I don't know if I'm right. I think this is right. right. Here's the argument, here's the evidence, here's the problems with the evidence. Decide for yourself, man. Yeah. But public health people can't do that. They need to give guidance. They yeah. gotta give that's job. And they gotta make that in order to get us to follow it. Yeah. They gotta make the guidance look like it's just chiseled in stone and then they forget that it's not. Science is not that science is not yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah I'd love to hear that case like I think that's like a great sort of way to frame it like you almost litigate like an on a, on a criminal justice system like here are the facts and let's litigate it from I think that's more understandable for lay people right like let's well, litigate also, this
0: you know if I could solve one of the things in mm-hmm. an ideal world and like if you have any wealthy uh people who listen, listen to, to that, this yeah. what would I do to solve this? one of the things I would do because, again, one of the problems here is so you've got a journalist saying, you know, the fundamental bedrock dogma, not just of obesity research, but a lot of nutrition is this calorie thing. And it's not even, you know, uh, Wolfgang Pauli, the physicist, but it's not even wrong. It's so meaningless, okay? It's just, it's the wrong paradigm. You can't make any progress. We don't. So who's going to believe? I mean, really, what are the chances that I'm Right. No matter how many people I say have also said this, right. what are the chances that the journalist is right? So, what I'm always hoping is if I'm right, there are still some very good scientists in the world. You can get them, they would see it the way I would see it. Yeah. So, I want a jury trial of my, let's say they're not even my peers, they're far better than my peers. I want a jury trial where the jury is 12 exceedingly smart scientists without bias, okay, just like you want your jury to be unbiased and then you have a defense team and a prosecuting team and those teams present evidence here's the evidence we've got and and the only difference is in this case that the jury is allowed to question the nature of the evidence and the jury is allowed to say what other evidence they need in order to you know for them to make their judgment which of these arguments are correct And I think if you had that kind of institution, so what we have today is consensus is formed based on the thinking of the leading people in the field, but the leading people in the field invariably have a kind of groupthink, whatever the science is. It could be anything from cosmology to the kind of nutrition stuff we're talking about. The way you become influential is and then move up in your field is to think like your colleagues. We all have this problem that we think people are smart who agree with us right they just... it's sort of ego i mean that's, yeah. that's just life right you have
1: to people reward well it also benefits yourself right like if other smart people think the same way i do clearly i'm smart too
0: well that's true yeah. but also if they think the same way i do then clearly i think they're smart yeah so and they're the ones yeah. i promote and they're the ones yeah. i respect and so it's very easy to form a consensus around a and
2: I, and I think that oftentimes we're sort of all sort of living in our little bubbles yeah. like just with what happened with the recent election I think there's factions of the United States were surprised oh, by oh, the oh. results because we're all sort of getting information from so many sources so right. we're kind of in a bubble and I think that just with medicine, I feel like there is certain bubbles, like institutional bubbles and research bubbles. Well,
0: it's funny when you do as a reporter, when you address these, so there's some fascinating concepts I came by. I kind of do this sort of blanket reporting where I I just talk to people and talk to people, hundreds of people until finally nobody can recommend anyone else I should talk to, I haven't spoken to, or nobody has said anything new to me that I haven't heard for like 20 interviews. But you never know if you're trapped in a bubble. Mm, Until you you
2: actually go out and talk to
0: everybody. Well, but even then, there are alternative there are concepts like in nutrition one of the interesting concepts was that the liver is the sense organ that basically is detecting whether or not we have enough energy available in our body and then signaling to our brain through a variety of mechanisms whether or not we should pursue food-seeking behavior feel hungry or inhibit food-seeking behavior and it's fascinating theory and it makes a lot of sense and they're about you know four labs that were looking into this back in the 80s and then it kind of vanishes did it vanish because it was refuted or did it vanish because these four labs could never get enough other people who are you know far more centrally focused to pay attention and so you're constantly finding these concepts that live in these little bubbles inside these bigger communities when i first discovered We, you know, if we talk about cancer, the link between insulin and IGF and cancer. And so this had come out of diabetes research because the the diabetes people who studied insulin and insulin-like growth factor. And when I first started looking into that in the early 2000s, I mean, again, it was fascinating and some diabetes researchers believed it and they told this interesting story and some of the work was done by a guy who won a Nobel Prize for other work. So that was a good, you know, sign that it wasn't crazy. But now I had to find people in the cancer research community who had, who knew enough about it
1: to comment right. on
0: whether it had any problem it, because it existed in a bubble. Right. And I went around and around and finally I found one guy at MIT, who's uh, Robert Weinberg, who's was writing a book. Uh, he was writing his first uh, textbook. Um, at the time and he had to learn about in order to to write the textbook even though it didn't end up in the textbook and when I first spoke to him he only knew half of the story I had to tell him the other half of it because he hadn't gotten into that bubble with his research I talked to a few Nobel laureates they just didn't know about it now they do now it's spread to the point that you can get informed opinions from outside the people who do it. But I think
1: the Internet has really enabled and accelerated that. Right. I think that's like one of the interesting points today where like smart people that don't necessarily have all the Ivy League degrees can actually look at the first letter, you know, the actual literature well, that and, just, and start engaging with other smart people and like find, find the truth right yeah. beyond like these gatekeepers of knowledge
0: well that's the thing and they used to, the gatekeepers used to be They consciously or unconsciously they just they determine what we knew so right. when the medical community for instance decided that Atkins was pushing quackery it existed only in the land of quackery for right. 20 30 years journalists weren't going to write it up as something other than that right. because they weren't going to take the chance of looking like so yeah, the Internet begins to spread this information around beyond the gatekeepers. I mean, it's both good and bad because we saw what happened in you know, the recent election where you get, you know, you choose what uh, source of information <laughs> you want. So it can spread quackery or, you know, alternative facts as easily as it could Fair spread yeah, real so It's like crack.
1: rocket fuel on like interesting sparks. Yeah, and it could be used for good or, or, or truth, or it can be used for like, hey, some quackeries yeah. spread really quackery spread, but it
0: definitely it democratized right. the spread of information it took so you could learn about these diets. I mean, if you think about how ketogenic diets first started getting studied. So there's some studies, you know, in the 70s, and... epileptic children. No, right? we're well, not just um, okay. taking it studied as a as a diet weight loss or performance okay. diet, um, Finney Volger. It's talking about Finney and Volek or Yeah, Finney and Volek's work. Finney's work back then. Volek came later. So then in the late nineties, after there it was clear there was an obesity epidemic on their hand, uh, people, doctors, physicians would have patients go on these diets and the patients and they'd go on these diets against their will. You know, the, right. the doctor would say, you, know, you can't go on Atkins, it's going to clog your arteries and kill you and make you fatter, and they'd do it anyway, and they'd come back like six months later having lost 30 pounds, and they'd do a cholesterol profile, and lo and behold, their lipids had improved, right. and some of the doctors just said, well, you're still killing yourself, but a few of them said, Jesus, this, hey, this is fascinating, right. and decided they would study it, so just the, you know, this was kind of pre-internet, but just because of the popularity of Atkins, you had it start to spread around the gatekeepers and then once the internet comes crashing in it's like now anyone can learn regardless of what their doctor says you can learn about it you can see the experience of others you could find out what happens you could try it yourself you could talk about you know you could find the chat groups online where you can discuss how to do it and what to do so it does definitely um i think one of the reasons why so it's you know when i get discouraged by the the responses from the establishment and their just, you know, fierce belief that obesity is an energy balance disorder. Um, you just see that this this intervention just keeps growing and I growing. It's because helping it's helping people. Right, too. It's so effective. Yeah. It's so remarkably effective, not for everyone. Right. But compared to drugs, man, it's, a, it's like a miracle oh, absolutely. cure.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think just like from our community, the We Fast fasting community, I know personally, like, you know, you know, Dr. Lamb, you you know, stuck, you know, to the dogma of like, okay, diabetic type twos, insulin. Right. And I think when we were talking about this before, like people just got fatter and worse, right? Because insulin is a fat storage home hormone. Right. And you're basically, like, giving an alcoholic more and more alcohol to treat their alcoholism. Yeah, but right?
2: this is- yeah I, think, I think one of the interesting things is, like, one of my do- uh, mentors would say, you know, don't treat the number, treat the patient. Right. And I think that in, in diabetes, I think it was one of those, you know, come to Jesus moments where, you know, we've been, when, when we check someone's hemoglobin A1C, we're really checking for the point in which doctors are going to start treatment, right? right? Because insulin resistance is, is a spectrum you know you don't just have pre-diabetes and all of a sudden you have diabetes it's a right. spectrum I and mean, the cutoffs are really for you know to tell doctors when to start something you know um, and the then there's, thumb, a, yeah. there's actually a push to start people on insulin earlier and earlier and earlier and you know that's something that i thought well, was, was correct mentor,
0: by the way i'm uh, just curious my mentor
2: i mean he's he's currently uh you know at, he, he was at stanford and now okay
0: because that's just you know there's so many so much of medicine has become right. about pre-treating the number Right. That it I, I hear somebody wrong. say right. something like yeah. that. Exactly. But i want to give them well, a psychic. psychic. I, <laughs> I think until,
2: uh, I think one of the interesting yeah. things about diabetes is that since we don't on a regular basis check insulin, right. we're just checking blood sugars, which is really just the number, but we're not right. really treating the patient, which is the it's insulin a number at a resistance. In yeah. right. It's a point in time. Right. It's a point in time. So for the longest time, you know, I agreed with what everybody was saying when it comes to insulin, but if you look at the pathophysiology, biochemistry of diabetes, if diabetes is a hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance problem, why are we giving more insulin?
0: Well, this is what, again, going back into history and remind me if I forget to get to Kahneman on this and thinking fast and slow, but historically, before insulin was discovered, diabetes was kind of perceived as a carbohydrate intolerance disease, Mm -hmm. right, because you couldn't metabolize the carbs so it was treated either by, well, type 1 was treated by the kind of starvation diet and type 2 by a carbohydrate-restricted diet, in effect, you Mm -hmm. know, meat and green vegetables was all they ate as soon as you discover insulin as soon as Bandic and best discover insulin diabetes becomes an insulin deficiency (laughs) problem of course they didn't know the difference they didn't know back then that type 2 was an insulin resistance right so now you've got the absence of a drug is the problem and it's now cured by the drug and you start jacking up the carb content of the diet because if you overdose if you give too much insulin or poorly dose the insulin you get Deal with hypoglycemia right. so the way you deal with that is by giving carbs so the entire ever all the thinking about preventing and about treating by diet vanishes or changes dramatically as soon as right. insulin is discovered because now you've changed where the spotlight right. is yeah. i think one of the
2: interesting things i read in your book was that yeah. i think there was this physician named allen or something that actually yeah, admitted, patients, allen. Yeah, admitted patients admitted yeah. like patients it was in the 1910s right yeah. before insulin discovered in 1921 and his treatment for Type 2 diabetics, or actually just diabetics in general, because they couldn't differentiate between yeah. type 1s or type 2s back then, was that uh, they would admit these patients into the hospital and then fast them right. or just starve them, quote unquote, fast them. <laughs> and then the type 2 diabetics would actually get better, and the type 1s got worse, and I think there was this kind of, you know, what's going on there. Yeah. And then in 1921, when insulin was discovered, mm. all of a sudden these type 1s were doing better, and yeah. then type 2s were also doing better, but that was just treating the number. Right, right. Because their blood sugars were more controlled. But, but then is... there's this kind of this. You know, they're, they're gaining more weight because, yeah. you know, insulin being a hormone yeah. like Jefferson. I mean,
0: there's another aspect to this which is, isn't in the book. The, the University of Michigan physician researcher I mentioned, who was so ob- convinced that obesity is a gluttony and sloth disorder, and his theory sort of carried the day post World War II because he was an American. Mm. He, um, <clears throat> 1920, 21, 22, yeah. published two articles in JAMA using low-carb, high-fat diets to treat diabetics, both type 1 and type 2, because they weren't differentiating. And he, he reported remarkable results. Mm. He said you could feed them higher calories than you would with the starvation diet. You can jack up the calories. You can keep their weight on them. You can make them healthier. And Elliot Joslin, the leading diabetes researcher of the day, bought into this and started using it in his clinic. And as soon as insulin is discovered, it vanishes because You can't give insulin and these diets because then you get hypoglycemia. Right. It's fascinating how, by studying the history, you could understand, you know, how. I mean, it's again, if somebody takes the wrong road scientifically, philosophically, intellectually, you got to go back to where the roads forked to well, find out what happened, right? I want
1: to, you know, obviously, I think we talked sort of ancillary around all the different, um, you know, I guess the context around where science and public policy went bad um, help us summarize here like the three uh, most compelling you know factoids if you will that our, our listeners can take away around the case against sugar um, like like what are the three biggest you know
0: things that okay we can so, so here yeah. if we're litigating the case against sugar right, right. we have to understand what what crime are we accusing it of having committed? Sure. And so that's the, you know, we have epidemics of obesity and diabetes worldwide. That's what I am trying to sort of focus in on these books because they're often getting forgotten. And what's, you know, like people didn't, I was talking to a, a woman in the UK today about a diet doctor over there who thinks everyone should eat kimchi and, you know, artichokes for their gut biome. And I said, well, clearly, you know, the people we don't have diabetes epidemics among the Inuit and the First Nations people because they weren't eating artichokes and kimchi. So the, it's quite likely that that's not the reason why there's a diabetes epidemic. But what we want to explain is it obesity and diabetes epidemics worldwide, whenever populations become westernized or urbanized, it doesn't yeah. matter what their traditional diets were. It could be anything from you know Southeast Asian diets with a lot of rice to Inuit diet with a lot of caribou and whale meat to yeah. Maasai diets to pick a diet when they become westernized and urbanized so the if it was chronic diseases we were talking about the vector of the chronic disease the i mean of infectious diseases the vector would be the western diet right so or is it western lifestyle being devil's advocate so yeah something with western something diet or lifestyle sure. there's okay. something about it that's causing these diseases just like you know we could say when uh you get a cholera epidemic there's or a, a you know, the plague, and it's particularly bad in in tenements, that it's the rats or the cockroaches, one of those is a vector, but now we have to identify the agent, you know, what is it that the vector is, you know, what is it in the vector that's giving us the disease, and so what I'm arguing is sugar is the agent, so first of all, it's it's always at the scene of the crime, going back now to a criminal justice metaphor. And whenever, you know, sugar is an absolutely vital part of any nutrition transition. And you can increase in sugar consumption. And it doesn't matter whether, again, it's we're talking Southeast Asians or Inuits or Maasai or Hunza in the Himalayas. They become urbanized, westernized, they eat more sugar. Sometimes you can find populations that don't eat You know, manifest obesity and diabetes epidemics without eating vegetable oils or ultra-processed foods or, you know, are extremely physically active. So we don't have to blame. We can rule out sedentary behavior if you're a believer in that, you know, whatever causes these epidemics in one population causes it in all of them. So that's how... So sugar is always at the scene of the crime. And then talking type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, we're talking, you know, the insulin resistance. And uh, some very good research suggests that insulin resistance starts with hepatic insulin resistance, uh, insulin resistance in the liver. And that starts, uh, or at least associates, with the accumulation of fat in Liver cells, and particularly a type of fat called diacylglycerol, which is two fatty acids in a glycerol molecule instead of three, as in triglycerides. So, and then the fructose component of sugar, sugar, and beet and cane sugar, and high fructose corn syrup are, you know, glucose and fructose in roughly 50 50 mixtures, and that fructose is metabolized in the liver. So it's sort of, it's at the scene of the crime in the body, and it's also metabolized because of the glucose in a high insulin environment and a high blood sugar environment. And when you do that and you do it in high doses, as we do in Western diets and lifestyles, um, you end up with converting the fructose to fat. So, you know, again, my very simplistic journalistic first principles understanding it's always there and historically when people notice diabetes epidemics beginning to emerge they invariably said hey man the sugar consumption skyrocketing yep. maybe it's the sugar and now you have it in the right organ you have it with the right weapon we don't have a smoking gun because those studies are really hard to do so i think i could get an indictment <laughs> i'm sure i can get an indictment yep. i my book is an indictment they Could I get a conviction? It depends on how much I could sway the jury with circumstantial evidence and ambiguous data. So, you know, so that's the message. And then the message is if sugar causes diabetes, and it's a causality very much like when we say cigarettes cause lung cancer and we don't tell people to smoke in moderation. We don't say smoking too much causes lung cancer. Right, have
1: a label like this causes cancer. Might, yeah. May cause death.
0: yeah, so if sugar causes diabetes and if you could establish that to the level that we need, it changes the conversation. Right. And changes, I am a parent, so it changes the way I think about feeding my kids. If, yep. You know, am I going to, how much do you let them have when you know it if they get this disease yeah, how it later practically, i'm
1: curious so, you know practically then like obviously you're you're coming in from a historical perspective yeah how, you know you know do you eat no sugar now do you have no carbs like what what is the day-to-day life in gary's household in terms of food
0: yeah, um i yeah, I well, I really haven't been eating sugar or much carbs for about 15 years. So yeah. I was doing the research for good calories, bad calories. I had tried Atkins diet as an experiment, and at least for me it was very effective. Right. like way It's like you flick a switch and you start losing weight that you've right. never been able to lose. It's bizarre, and it's, you know. I think it's a it's an absolutely necessary phenomenon to under, really understand what happens on these diets. But um, anyway then I fell off, then I started doing the research for good calories, bad calories, and it was clear that to me that this was a healthy way to eat and that I would benefit from doing it and as I understood the science underneath it, which not even Atkins, you know, a lot of these people for a variety of reasons never really nailed what I think was the critical part of the science, which is the insulin axis. Um, the, uh, you know, I stayed on it. so I, I haven't eaten uh, I don't eat starches or grains for the most part. And whenever I get suckered into the paleo story and try to have a little bit of a sweet potato for right. dinner, I end up going into a food coma like 30 see. minutes later and wow. I'm sound asleep and it's the same phenomenon that used to happen when I was a kid. Was, you Are know, you trying to like load up on fat like additional fat? I mean I drink I've lately gotten addicted to bulletproof coffee okay, and so I'm a little, little bit worried butter, about it but yeah. yeah you know just because I'm not sure we evolved to drink hot coffee and MCT oil no matter how much it might <laughs> and it's interesting because I really now I do like I wake up craving it it's like a regular cup of coffee is I travel with, you know, travel packs of coconut <laughs> butter from Trader Joe's, coconut oil. Actually, one of
2: the things I wanted to talk about yeah. was, uh, I think in our group, we one of the things that we do as a group is that we do intermittent fasting. Right. And so once a week at, uh, you know, our we fast community does like a 36-hour thir- fast and we've hosted, you know, seven-day fasts right. um, on a regular yeah, basis. Yeah, I'm curious community. about like yeah. your thinking as, around there. As a there. skeptic, you know, I've heard in other podcasts, you know, you're, you're like a healthy skeptic regarding fasting. So yeah. just wanted to hear what you thought about it because from my experience, I actually came to your work, low-carb, high-fat, right. ketosis, ketogenic diets, after actually reading about fasting, because when I looked into fasting, I looked into the biochemistry, and you know, ketosis
1: seems to be this thing that you want to I think it's interesting because like, if you think that, you know, sugar is affected by hormones, or is a hormone, or obesity is a hormone related thing, Clearly, intermittent fasting affects a lot of hormonal responses well, as well. that's a thing. So, so I don't like, think it's… a it's very a... similar mechanism. Yeah. But I'm curious, like… Yeah. Well, how that's differentiate, thing. So,
0: it's a way to, you know, I don't see it as a way to eat less calories, right. calorie reduction. I see it if it works, um, you know, it's going to work through probably the insulin IGF axis among keeping yes. it, it lower longer and yep. allowing all these processes to occur that are inhibited when insulin and IGF are elevated. Um, my skepticism is well first of all you just never know you know i mean but I mean,
1: like the argument of going back to history right it's like, a, well, well our ancestors I, have gone through feast and famines they did but, but now we're constantly eating
0: but they went through feast and famine far more after agriculture was discovered than before <laughs> so you know hunter gatherers one of the I, I have a very resilient because they hunt and gather yeah. so many different foods yeah. that their food supply is thought to be far more resilient than agriculturalists and so mono cultures where your entire crop can be wiped out by a famine. Um, So I'm not quite so convinced that it was a, you know, it was a a required part, but I do think that people, you know, when they're not eating carbs, it's certainly a lot easier to skip meals, right? Because your insulin's low anyway and you're, you're, you know, you're burning your own fat. You have much more fuel available to burn so you can go longer periods. Um, So I can't imagine it having... Um, the negative side effects. In that sense, the way you know, if you were saying take this, you know, great new chemical, like it's another one like, of
1: these things where you stop doing something, right? Like yeah. Stop eating carbs is like stop eating. Period. I mean, yeah. Different degrees of stop doing something. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: in that sense, my skepticism comes in in terms of, you know, are there real benefits? that are long lasting if you continue to do it and, can, and do the people who swear by it today, are they gonna be, so I know from personal experience, and again, this is what I see, that it's very easy to, to maintain a low carb lifestyle if you happen to like things like you know, animal yeah. products yeah. and bacon and butter. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean it's not gonna kill me though. But it's easy for me to maintain. I worry that like five years from now, intermittent fasting will have been what you did in two thousand seventeen, because it's just easier. It's you know for whatever reason it doesn't it it requires more of a sacrifice and the benefits may not That's be. It's funny. As I would say it's the opposite.
1: I think it's being disciplined for short bursts is easier than never have a beer or a pizza. Well, and we that's
0: can. one of the interesting things. Well, so so it's, like, can... it's funny. It's like basically yeah. I
1: think like the very similar mechanism how these both affect. Yeah. Right. I, I agree. I think it basically both on underlying mechanisms like yeah. reducing insulin, increasing the sensitivity towards insulin and yeah. reducing yeah. IGF-1. That's, I think I... that's why as biohackers like yeah. we, we're continuous glucose monitors. right? Yeah. So we do tell that like before fasting and after fasting our baseline blood glucose resting is like well, these, lower at post fast right so
0: cgms so, are going to change the world i yeah, think i, I mean they really yeah. um you know and these are the you pointed to your arm so this yeah, the, the yeah, yeah. uh
1: yeah we got them on uh gray market on through ebay but although dr lamb is a doctor so he's been able to okay, essentially well,
0: f- feel free to connect me afterwards. I'd love to try it. Um, I do think, and then you could see CGMs changing the world already in the di like type one diabetics who are, you know, now, um, there's a whole,
1: I want to, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we have, you know, took a lot of your time, I want to give you the last word, uh, for our, our listeners out there. I mean, it sounds like very clearly, Hey, we should at least at minimum be thoughtful that, Hey, like, let's look at our sugar intake. Um, and probably start minimizing that to the extent that we can, well, I think true. as a baseline, any other sort of I, I'm curious, yeah. either any other like last remaining points to help push in the awareness of this broad, I think pattern that we think will be, I mean, I think we all agree in this room yeah. that like sh- big sugar will look like big tobacco in yeah. 10, 20 years. I think that that's kind of, will be a part of our mission here to help ex sort of experiment that message. Um, what's next on your radar? If there's something that's interesting else on that radar that you're looking at or if there's hey like we should focus on the sugar Uh, Epidemic. Well, again, to
0: me, it's the sugar and the the white flour basically are the, I mean, sugar first and then the refined grains second Mm -hmm. are the problems with modern diets. And, you know, again, I have people who are sort of constantly a little upset with me that I don't buy into the vegetable oil story the way they do. And I just I find the evidence less compelling. But I don't know, maybe vegetable oils are just as bad or they cause it maybe, you know, they cause a different issue or a different part of this issue um I think everyone could be healthy one of the interesting things you point out is <clears throat> and I'm thinking back to when I was younger and so much of my work was fueled by sugar rushes so sugar and caffeine's an incredibly powerful you know drug whether Works. it's in the form of a coke or a Dr. Pepper or right. an energy drink and it's sort of you you know back in the days when like this is all you do it's you don't really care part of being young is like i don't care i drove motorcycles (laughs) i took drugs i you know boxed i did a lot of things that were stupid in retrospect and that i'm probably paying for still today but the question is how do you so if you want the cognitive potency that you get from the sugar rush without the sugar and this is where things like bulletproof coffee or maybe intermittent fasting or certain ketosis is if you find that you're, you know, you're working at a high cognitive level without having to, you know, I remember writing a screenplay once when I lived in L.A. with a friend, we used to get together, to collaborate. we'd get together to meet at, you know, Annie's Pretzels, and you'd get one of those, like, sugary pretzels, and they were delicious, and I would, like, I was, you know, my IQ went up 30 points for, (laughs) like, the next hour and a half, and then I would crash, I would literally go, okay, I'm done, that's (laughs) all you get, you know? and th- 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 this is what we do when we're young right i wasn't even that young then i was probably late 30s but anyway it's an effective way to push yeah you know, it's a, it's a performance enhancing drug i think it's a
1: nice way to sort yeah. of wrap up here right like there's yeah. multiple levers that operate our human system right and i think at minimum right we should be aware of exactly how all these affect us short term and long term gotcha yeah appreciate gary thanks okay. so much for my pleasure
0: you. Yeah. thank you guys
1: Cool, that was a really fun conversation with Gary. I had a really good time. I know he is sort of a personal hero of yours after you, know, you, have, you have his books, and we got him to sign the books just just before he was able to head out. Um, yeah, your quick thoughts on like, you know. What you thought was most interesting, um, immediate feedback here. Yeah, I mean, I think that it was nice to just hear
2: about his like personal journey through uh, the last, you know. he. Of all people was was able to kind of really dig into like the nutritional science and I think that very few people actually have the opportunity to be able to dig and I think that he provided a, an interesting alternative perspective or hypothesis to you know what is essentially mainstream so I think that you know his in his, his uh his ability to be able to you know think about stuff like critically and be pessimistic about things but then
1: reevaluate I thought was kind of an interesting yeah to that. me I thought um he did I, I think he articulated a very good historical perspective on on the history of nutrition I think a lot of the science is very compelling and emerging and growing really quickly right if you look at the Google trends around keto versus low fat that's a very big trend. We see that with our community, with our research, with our science team, clearly a lot of benefits around fasting, uh, low-carb, high-fat, all these sort of interventions. So I don't even think it's alternative as much as this is the truth. And I think he's a very good voice in helping paint a historical context around it. And I see that you know we're a big community and a big voice in spreading this knowledge um, along with Great writers like Gary Gary Taubes. Um, I mean, I know like the work that you've been doing with, you know, p- diabetics one on one, right? Literally taking them off insulin with a combination of fasting and low carb mm-hmm. diets works, um, right? Like, right. You, and I think it's like we need voices like Gary to litigate in in books. We need communities like our we fast and Nutriboxy pushing biohacking pushing. Uh, taking control of our own health inputs as a part of that solution, and I think we also need doctors like yourself who are like, hey, some of the recommendations from American Diabetics Association, et cetera, are wrong. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's just like, we we, we should not uh, be afraid to like look at the science, look at the results that we're seeing in vivo, and be like, hey, there's some disconnect here, we should be strong on, on pushing this forward. Um, one, the areas that I wish we had a little bit more time that uh, to dive into were some of the performance benefits of sugar. I think that was like an interesting thing that I don't think I've seen a lot of discussion around, right? Like uh, on one hand, clearly probably too much hidden sugar in our diet. One interesting statistic that I've seen recently was that it's not even from, like, candies or, right, or anything. Mm. It's, like, literally embedded into the sauce, the pasta, the noodles. Right. All, the all those added sugars and, that you don't even keep account. Right, like, 2% of sugar intake is from confections. So it's not, it's like, it's not, it's not literally like a candy's fault. It's, like, right. what's baked into our food supply. But I think the interesting part around it was that, hey, like, there are performance benefits potentially mm. around sugar, around different things, right? Like, sugar, glucose is, we need glucose for anaerobic, power move, like power exertion, right? Like you need that. So I think it's like, there's some, I think the whole thing that that NutriBox and what we should be a very clear voice in is that there's dogma on both sides, right? Like obviously the dogma is very heavily tilted towards um, standard Western Western diet with a lot of carbs. Does that mean like, hey, we go completely eating sticks of butter and drinking oil, Are there actually applications for, right. for, for sugar? Are there applications for sugar? One and two, like there. let's not go on, let's not be a complete uh, bandwagon jumpers and just do a hard, you know, 180, go the complete opposite direction, right. just like some barrel down there without thinking either. Um, so also my consider- goal, so I think my goal here is that hopefully everyone, uh, at least if not spark some interest, um, you know, Starts looking at all different inputs in their body and seeing how and what levers they can play. Right. right. I think that's that's how we started with nutribox That's how we started with Nutropics. That's how we started, started with fasting. That's how we were just getting started with like yeah.
2: ketones. I think one of the interesting things that you things you brought up about is like the application of certain compounds and at what you know using uh, pulling the levers at what point in time. Yeah. You know, if your goals are weight loss or decreased body fat composition, maybe you know lower carb, high fat is great. But maybe if you're in like performance enhancement, or maybe there's that, uh, you know, last night of studying. Do you, is is there actually a place potentially for sugar, or you know, uh, in in the diet or a, actually in the meal right before you perform certain like feats of like strength yeah. that potentially exactly. potentially that uses anaerobic metabolism. Is there a way that potentially could actually be optimizing your state so that yeah. you can actually be faster or more powerful? And I think that you know I think there's like you said there are different sides of the coin but
1: I think it's all it's a very interesting thing to kind of think about yeah I think that's like as biohacker that's what we're all about right let's use the right compounds the right protocols for the right use cases um, so we'll leave it there so Gary is just across the bay from us we're in San Francisco he's actually based in Oakland so he'll be back on at, uh, you know and, and continue the conversation so if you have questions that you'd like answered or areas that you'd like to have us dive deeper into with gary uh next time please send it out um we're on as always youtube soundcloud itunes and google play um until next time jeff and dr lamb out that was fun peace